8. And years after our Savior's Passion, Treatise on the Sabbath, page 77, 4th century canon 29, of the Council of Laodicea AD 364, shows that the ecclesiastical system was laboring to put an end to Sabbath keeping, Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday the Sabbath, but shall work on that day, but the Lord's Day as they called Sunday they shall especially honor, and, as being Christians, shall, if possible, do no work on that day, if, however, they be found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ, Hefeli, History of the Councils of the Church, Volume II, Book 6, Seconds 93, Canon 29, 5th century Sozomen's Ecclesiastical History shows Rome evidently leading in the effort to abolish any recognition whatever of the Sabbath, the people of Constantinople, and of several other cities, assemble together on the Sabbath as well as on the next day, which custom is never observed at Rome, or at Alexandria. Book 7, Chap. 19, 7th century There were true Sabbath keepers in Rome itself, teaching the truth of God among the people, and bringing upon themselves the denunciation of Pope Gregory the Great, who wrote to his most beloved sons the Roman citizens, It has come to my ears that certain men of perverse spirit have sown among you some things that are wrong and opposed to the holy faith so as to forbid any work being done on the Sabbath day. What else can I call these but preachers of Antichrist? History of the Councils, Labe and Cossert, Volume V. Call, 1511, see also, Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, Volume XII, Book 13, Epistle 1, 11th Century The Pope's Legates at Constantinople AD 1054 were called to discuss with Nicetas, one of the most learned men at that time in the East, says Bauer whose position was, that the Sabbath ought to be kept holy, and that priests should be allowed to marry. History of the Popes. Volume II. Page 358. The people of North Scotland. The ancient Caldy Church founded by Columba and his followers, far removed from direct papal influence, was still keeping the seventh-day Sabbath in the 11th century. Of this church Andrew Lang says in his, History of Scotland, they worked on Sunday, but kept Saturday in a sabbatical manner. Volume I page 96. Scunny, in his classic work, Celtic Scotland, says of these Sabbath keepers, they seem to have followed a custom of which we find traces in the early monastic church of Ireland, by which they held Saturday to be the Sabbath, on which they rested from all their labors. Book 2. Chap. 8. Margaret, of England, married Malcolm the Great, the Scottish king, in 1069, an ardent Catholic. Queen Margaret at once set about Romanizing the Celtic Church. She called in the church leaders, and held long discussions with them. At last, with the help and authority of her royal husband, and quoting the instructions of the blessed Pope Gregory, she succeeded in turning the ancient Caldy Church in Scotland away from the Sabbath. See, Life of Saint Margaret, by Turgot, her confessor. 12th to 14th century among the numerous sects of southern Europe and the Alpine valleys that were pursued and persecuted by Rome, were at least some who saw and obeyed the Sabbath truth. Thus, of one of these bodies, the historian Goldastus says, they were called in Sabbatati, not because they were circumcised, but because they kept the Sabbath according to the Jewish law. Deutsche Biography, Volume IX, Art, Goldast, page 327. 15th century Sabbath keepers in Norway drew the condemnation of a church council held in 1435, the archbishop and the clergy assembled in this provincial council at Bergen do decide that the keeping of Saturday must never be permitted to exist, except as granted in the church law, 
Jesus, Norsky Kirk's History. Volume II. Page 488. 16th century with the setting free of the Word of God by the Reformation, and the protest against the doctrine of papal tradition. Multitudes saw that the Sunday institution was not of divine origin, while not a few went farther, recognizing the claims of God's Sabbath. Moravia was a refuge, in those early Reformation days, for many believers in the Reformed doctrines. And among these were Sabbath-keeping Christians, illustration, WALDNSEs hunted by the armies of Rome, destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Heb. 1137, 38, even most prominent men, as the princes of Liechtenstein, held to the observance of the true Sabbath, when persecution finally scattered them. The seeds of truth must have been sown by them in the different portions of the continent which they visited. We have found them Sabbath keepers in Bohemia. They were also known in Silesia and Poland. Likewise they were in Holland and northern Germany. There were at this time Sabbath keepers in France, among whom were Engelaroch, who wrote in defense of the Sabbath against Bossuet, Catholic Bishop of Meaux. That Sabbatarians again appeared in England by the time of the Reformation. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth A.D. 1533-1603, Dr. Chambers testifies in his Cyclopedia Art, Sabbath, Andrews and Conradi, History of the Sabbath, pages 649-650. In the century also, Sabbath keepers appeared in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. In 1554 Kings Davis Vesa, of Sweden, addressed a letter of remonstrance to the common people in Finland because so many were turning to keep the seventh day. 17th century there was much discussion in England over the authority for Sunday observance, when other church festivals were ignored, as Easter. King Charles I wanted to know why Sunday should be kept. He wrote, It will not be found in scripture where Saturday is discharged to be kept, or turned into the Sunday, wherefore it must be the church's authority that changed the one and instituted the other. Therefore my opinion is that those who will not keep this feast Easter may as well return to the observation of Saturday, and refuse the weekly Sunday. Cox. Sabbath Laws. Page 333. It was during this time that the idea first obtained of enforcing Sunday obligation by the Fourth Commandment and calling it the Sabbath. It was argued that any one day in seven was what the commandment meant. Of this argument, John Milton, the statesman poet, wrote, it is impossible to extort such a sense from the words of the commandment, seeing that the reason for which the command itself was originally given, namely, as a memorial of God's having rested from the creation of the world, cannot be transferred from the seventh day to the first, nor can any new motive be substituted in its place, whether the resurrection of our Lord or any other, without the sanction of a divine commandment. Prose Works, Bone, pages 70, 71, again Milton wrote, in a manuscript which his publishers at the time feared to print, if we under the gospel are to regulate the time of our public worship by the prescriptions of the Decalogue, it will surely be far safer to observe the seventh day, according to the express commandment of God, than on the authority of mere human conjecture to adopt the first. Cox. Sabbath Literature. Volume II. Page 54. While kings and poets and ecclesiastics discussed, here and there believers began to follow the plain word of God and Christ's example in Sabbath keeping. Love not their lives unto the death. In 1618 John Trask and his wife, of London, were condemned for keeping the Sabbath of the Lord. The man being whipped from Westminster to the Old Fleet Prison, near Ludgate Circus. Both were imprisoned. Mr. Trask recanted under the pressure. 
after a year, but Mrs. Traska, a gifted school teacher, was given grace to hold out for 16 years, for a time in Maiden Lane Prison, and then in the gatehouse, by Westminster, dying in prison for the word of the Lord, an estimable woman she was, says one old chronicler, save for this whimsy of hers, that she would keep the seventh day, all that she asked of men, on her prison deathbed, was that she might be buried in the fields, by 1661 Sabbath keepers in London had further increased, in that year John James was minister to a considerable congregation, meeting in East London, off the Whitechapel Road, as part of the stern proceedings against descending sects after the restoration of the monarchy, he was arrested and condemned to death on Tyburn Tree, his wife knelt at the feet of King Charles I as he came out of Street James's palace one day, and pleaded for her husband's life, but the king scornfully rejected her plea, and said that the man should hang. Mogg says, for once the king remembered his promise, and Mr. James was sent to join the noble army of martyrs. History of Dissenters. Volume I, page 155. Nothing daunted. The number of Sabbath keepers increased. In a letter by Edwards Tennant between 1668 and 1670, it is stated, here in England are about nine or ten churches that keep the Sabbath, besides many scattered disciples, who have been eminently preserved in this tottering day, when many once eminent churches have been shattered in pieces. Cox. Sabbath Literature. Volume I, page 268. Francis Bankfield was formerly an influential minister of the Church of England, and prebendary of Exeter Cathedral but later pastor of a Sabbath-keeping congregation meeting in the Pinners Hall, off Broad Street, near the Bank of England. Calamy said of him, he was one of the most celebrated preachers in the west of England, and extremely admired by his hearers, till he fell into the Sabbatarian notion, of which he was a zealous asserter. Nonconformist Memorial, Volume I, I page 152. He was arrested while in the pulpit preaching, and in 1683 died of hardships in Newgate Prison. For the Sabbath of the Lord, an old writer says that his body was followed to burial by a very great company of factious and schismatical people, in other words, dissenters from the state church. Thomas Bankfield, his brother, Speaker of the House of Parliament at one time, under Cromwell, published a book in defense of the Sabbath of the Lord. In fact, many published the truth in this manner, and doctors of divinity and even bishops wrote replies, Sabbatarian Baptists. These English witnesses to God's Sabbath were first called in those times, and then, Seventh-day Baptists, in 1664 Stephen Mumford, from one of these London congregations, was sent over to New England, he settled in Rhode Island, where the Baptist pioneer of religious liberty, Roger Williams, had founded his colony, in 1671 the first Sabbatarian church in America was formed in Rhode Island, evidently this movement created a stir for the report went over to England that the Rhode Island colony did not keep the Sabbath, meaning Sunday. Roger Williams wrote to his friends in England denying the report, but calling attention to the fact that there was no scripture for abolishing the seventh day, and adding, you know yourselves do not keep the Sabbath, that is the seventh day. Letters of Roger Williams, Volume VI, page 346 Narragansett Club Publications through the following century numbers of Seventh-day Baptist churches were founded in America, as Sabbath keepers were springing up also on the continent of Europe, in Bohemia, Moravia, Transylvania, and Russia, where here and there Bible believers saw that tradition had made void one of the commandments of God. Then, 
as the events at the end of the long period of papal supremacy had moved Bible students to the earnest study of the prophecies, and as the predicted signs of the near approach of Christ's coming began to appear, there arose the great advent awakening in the earlier decades of the 19th century. The prophecies regarding the work of the papacy in seeking to change the law of God began to be understood, and it was seen that the last message of the everlasting gospel was a call to turn from human traditions to the New Testament standard, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Ref. 14.12. Then began the great movement for Sabbath reform and the proclamation of Christ's second coming, which has given rise to the Seventh-day Adventist people, with a work spreading through all lands leading thousands every year to keep the Lord's blessed Sabbath day. Soon Christ is to be revealed in righteousness and judgment. One burden of God's message for the last days is, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keep at the Sabbath from polluting it, and keep at his hand from doing any evil. Isaiah 56 colon 1 2. Through all the dark centuries, the Lord had somewhere a little remnant keeping the light of the Sabbath truth glowing. They, too, overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their lives unto the death. Now, with the clear light shining from the open book, it is for Christians everywhere to turn from tradition to the way of God's commandments and the example of Jesus Christ. In connection with this topic of Sabbath observance in colonial America, it is of interest to note that Count Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravian missionary movement, was a believer in the sanctity of the Sabbath of God's appointment, in his life, by Bishop Spangenberg. It is stated that the Sabbath question was discussed by Zinzendorf with the Moravians, on his visit to Pennsylvania in 1741. The record states, as a special circumstance it is to be remarked that he determined, with the church in Bethlehem, to celebrate the seventh day as a rest day. The matter was previously fully gone over in the church council, with consideration of all the reasons for and against it. When the unanimous agreement was reached to observe the day sabbatically, the Count had already long held the seventh day of the week in special honor. Zinzendorf's, Leben, Band 5, pages 1421-1422. The Bethlehem congregation evidently did not follow the practice long, but as for himself, says Spangenberg, with his house. He adhered firmly to this aforementioned practice until his end. It, page 1437, The law of God I thou shalt have no other gods before me. I I thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything, that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. I, I, I thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. I be remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them island and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it, be honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, 
V.I. Thou shalt not kill. V.I. Thou shalt not commit adultery. V.I. Thou shalt not steal. I.X. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. X. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Nor his manservant. Nor his maidservant. Nor his ox. Nor his ass. Nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Illustration. Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Whosoever shall do and teach them. Shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matt. 519. The law of God it is a common saying. The majesty of the law. It means that the character and genius of a government are embodied and expressed in its laws. The words of inspiration declare to us the majesty of the law of the Most High. The character of God's law the infinite perfection of the divine character is reflected in it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. P.S. 19.7. As God is holiness and justice and goodness, so also is his law. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Rom. 7.12. Its office the law of God gives knowledge of the righteousness of its great author. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Isaiah. 51.7. It marks every departure from righteousness as sin. Whosoever cometh sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3.4. It is not a code merely for the regulation of outward conduct. It is the moral law the primal standard of righteousness established by the Creator for His creatures. There is not an impulse of the inmost soul that is not reached by it. It is the word which, living and powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Heb. 4.12. Face to face with this holy law. We hear in it the voice of God saying, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Every soul must confess its guilt before the searching power of God's law. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Guilty. We confess. Left alone with our guilt. There could be no ray of hope. The threatenings of the broken law impress the soul with dread. If God his sword of vengeance draw, it strikes the spirit dead. Thank God. We are not left alone. Help is laid upon one mighty to save. But thine illustrious sacrifice hath answered these demands, and peace and pardon from the skies are offered by thy hands. God's law from the beginning the law of God existed from the beginning. When Adam sinned, he transgressed this holy law, for sin is the transgression of the law. God's law was not committed to a writing until the days of Moses, when the Lord began to make his written revelations to the children of men. But from Adam to Moses the precepts of the law of God were teaching righteousness and convicting of sin. Wherefore? As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned, for until the law the giving of it hath Sinai sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses. Rom. 5.12.14 The declaration of this scripture is, without the law there can be no sin. But sin and death were from Adam to Moses, in whose day the law was spoken on Sinai. Therefore the law of God was in force from the beginning. Its precepts were witnessed to by every preacher of righteousness raised up by God in the days before the deluge and in the patriarchal age following. Of Abraham the Lord says, Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. General 26:5. The Lord called his people out of Egypt, that they might keep his law. His message to Pharaoh was, Let my people go that they may serve me. Example 9 colon 1. 
he delivered them from bondage by his mighty arm, and cleft the Red Sea to lead them forth to obedience. As the psalmist said, he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, that they might observe his statutes, and keep his laws. P.S. 105 minutes and 43 seconds 45. In Egyptian bondage the children of Abraham must have lost much of the purity of God's truth, yet the Lord held them under obligation to know his law the Sabbath precept particularly before they came to Sinai, or ever he had proclaimed the law in their hearing. He tested them in the matter by the giving of the manna, as he said, that I may prove them, whether they will walk in my law, or number, example 16 colon 4, from the beginning. God's holy law demanded the loyal obedience of every human being. Proclaimed anew at Sinai the Lord had delivered the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage that they might serve him and make his ways known to the nations. This was according to the promise made to Abraham. To them was committed the written revelation of God, and through them was to come in the fullness of time the promised Messiah. While the Lord at this time made known his ways unto Moses, and there was begun the written revelation which grew into the volume of the book, the Holy Scriptures. One portion of revelation was not left for the prophet of God to speak or for the inspired pen to write. The Lord proclaimed his holy law with his own voice, and gave to men a copy, written with the finger of God. Moses said of this, The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire, ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice, and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Dude. 4.12.13. This display of majesty and glory indescribable was designed to teach how sacred and holy is the law, and to cause men to fear to transgress its precepts. Example 20.20. It was not for themselves alone that the law was committed to Israel. They were to teach the truth to others. As the New Testament says, it was greatly to their advantage that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Rom. 3.2. But they, received the lively oracles to give unto us, through obedience to the divine law. They were to be a light to the nations. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes, and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them? Dude. 4 colon 6. 7. An interesting comment upon these words is supplied by a speech of Felleries. Librarian to Ptolemy Philadelphus, King of Egypt, urging the king by all means to secure copies of the sacred books of the Jews for his great library in Alexandria. Thalery said, Now it is necessary that thou shouldst have accurate copies of them. And indeed this legislation is full of hidden wisdom, and entirely blameless, as being the legislation of God, for which cause it island as Hecatus of Abdera says, that the poets and historians make no mention of it, nor of those men who lead their lives according to it since it is a holy law, and ought not to be published by profane mouths. Josephus, Antiquities, Book 12, Chap. 2, Seconds 4, and faithful as the Jewish people oftentimes were, yet through their testimony and the dealings of God with them, the fame of the living oracles was spread abroad among the ancient nations. One God one moral standard, there is one lawgiver. James 4:12. he is ever the same, and his law is the standard of righteousness for all mankind. There was not one moral standard before Christ and another after. Christ's death upon the cross because man had broken the law. Is the divine testimony to all the universe that God's law can never be set aside nor its force suspended. Jesus opened his public teaching with the declaration, 
Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matt. 5.17.19. The moral law of ten commandments is one code, every precept equally sacred and equally binding, whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill, now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law, so speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. James 2 10 12, the law of God still speaks with all the force of that voice from Sinai, and it speaks to every soul on earth, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God, Rom, 3 19, thus the law of God convicts all men of sin, and would drive everyone to Christ for pardon and for the divine gift of the grace and power of obedience. The ceremonial law the precepts and ordinances commanded for the sacrificial system ceased with the sacrifice of Calvary. As all these ceremonial observances point forward to the cross, there can be no confounding of the moral law and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law of types and shadows showed in itself that a primary or higher law the moral law had been violated, making necessary a divine sacrifice if transgressors were to be saved from death and restored to obedience. The standard in the judgment the law of God's moral government, which is the rule of life for every creature, must necessarily be the standard in the great judgment day. The scripture states the sum of all human obligation and responsibility in the words, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good, or whether it be evil. Echol. 12.13. 14. Every son and daughter of Adam's lost race is judgment bound, to answer before the bar of God the demands of the perfect law. Divine justice cannot abate one jot or tittle of the requirements of the holy law, nor by any means clear the guilty, but divine mercy has provided the way by which God can be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Illustration, childlike faith, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matt. 18.3. Justification by faith. How should man be just righteous with God? Asked the patriarch Job. It has been the vital question ever since Adam sinned, and lost his righteousness and forfeited his life. The answer of scripture is, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rom 5.1. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, if, 2 colon 8, 9, in the beginning, life and righteousness were the gift of God to man, only the creator could bestow the gift at the first, when lost, only creative power can restore it, man cannot justify himself the law of God declares all men sinners, not only did Adam's posterity inherit of necessity a sinful nature, but every soul of man has wrought sin as the fruit of that nature, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Rom. 5.12. There is no difference, 
Jew or Gentile, bond or free, they are in the same lost condition, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Rom. 10-12-3-23. The sinner finds himself a transgressor, condemned to death by a holy law. He turns to it with the thought, I will do what it says, and become righteous and win life. But he cannot undo the fact that he has sinned. A holy law can only cry, guilty, guilty, to a one who has transgressed it. The law declares righteousness, it cannot give it. As the scripture says, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Rom. 3.19.20. The guilt exists. No deeds that man can do can undo it or cover it from a righteous law. Not only that, but as soon as the law declares what righteousness island the sinner finds that its demands are altogether beyond the power of his flesh to meet. It calls for a kind of work that fallen human nature cannot so much as approach. Paul cried out, when struggling under conviction, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Rom. 7.14. The carnal cannot bring forth the spiritual, but the law demands a spiritual work of righteousness. It is impossible for the carnal mind to undertake it. The scripture says, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Rom. 8 colon 7. 8. But the awakened sinner is yet in the flesh. He finds the law thundering his guilt and condemning him to death. He cannot wash away the past, nor hide it. He cannot obey God's law with a carnal mind. And that is all the mind he has. He is lost, and helpless of himself, but longs for a way of escape. Paul's cry in the same position is the cry of the despairing heart that has not found the Savior. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Rom. 7.24. Thank God, there is an answer to that cry. For every sinner, plunged in a gulf of dark despair, we wretched sinners lay, without one cheering beam of hope, or spark of glimmering day. With pitying eyes the Prince of Grace beheld our helpless grief, he saw, and, O amazing love, He came to our relief, the free gift of Christ following that despairing cry of human helplessness, who shall deliver me, there came the believer's shout of praise, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he is the deliverer, for he gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us, Rom, 725, down 1 4, the way of escape and salvation is the gift of God's love, God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 No sinner has need to plead that God may be willing to forgive him, the Lord's infinite love that gave his son to die, is pleading with the sinner to believe and accept salvation, in order to be the sinner's savior. The divine son of God must take man's place before the broken law. He came in human flesh, with all its weakness. I can of miles.